in part 4,795 in my series of rants on the evil of cities. Have you ever noticed that there is no mob rule in rural areas of the United States? And looking, looking up statistics today, I realize that I should actually call it suburban and rural areas of the United States. I did not know that the population uh, is divided into three. Urban or city population, suburban or removed from the city, and then rural. Rural, which we all are up here, only account for about 18% of the population in the United States, just to let you know. But there are no instances of mob rule in rural areas, and I will say suburban areas of the United States. This is along the same lines as my observation on uh, Genesis chapter 11 uh, last week in our adult Sunday school, the, the history of the city of Babel and the tower that was built to challenge God. It is my contention that God is not a fan of big cities. And like I say, I don't ever read ahead on these things. If you go to the Sunday school lesson today, we've got some lengthy, as we finish up this uh, Tower of Babel uh, narrative, uh, we have what deep thinkers think God thought about cities uh, coming a little bit later. But I believe my exact wording about how God thinks of cities is that God hates cities. His command to um, man is to fill the earth, but instead from Cain onwards, first Cain, then the evil Lamech, not the good Lamech, men have wanted to clump together in large cities. Now there are any number of reasons for this. Uh, Men working together can accomplish more than a man alone and more quickly. The fact that the greater number of people provide more safety from conquering outsiders, which were a big concern, especially back in biblical times. Prosperity from commerce is easier to realize in a large community. But there are less noble reasons to choose a city lifestyle. It's easier to be anonymous and to lose yourself in the masses because of the anonymity that those masses provide. Uh, There's less accountability to others because I read stories all the time of people in cities who have not met their next door neighbors, who do not know who the people living in the next apartment are, for instance. There's the ability to be less scrupulous in personal transactions because of that loss of community. But a small town, a rural area, is all about honest dealings between neighbors, sharing hardships in the community, personal relationships, and a shared experience and shared goals over a long period of time. There is a permanence in a small town that is is impossible in a city. But that permanence demands accountability. I've been a builder up here for 45 years now, and I've seen a lot of builders come and go. The ones who have lasted do it on a good reputation. This mountain is much too small for 
less than scrupulous people to survive for long on it. But down the hill, there's 20 million people. I couldn't work my way through 20 million people in a thousand lifetimes. A bad reputation does not follow you on a personal level. level. Bad word of mouth will not affect your business. There are simply too many people living in the area and that's why some people gravitate to the cities. I believe that God hates cities. I believe God hates cities because he designed us to be accountable and alive lived in close proximity to your family and your community reinforces that accountability. I've told before the story of 17, I had a 57 Ranchero um, passed down to me by my father. I blew it up. Oh gosh, did I blow it up. I melted the rings on the engine. I'm told that that's impossible. And I took it to our local mechanic. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in Chatsworth. Took it to our local mechanic. And, you know, he looks at the engine and I say, is it serious? Because I was 17. He says, only if you want to fix it. And I wanted to fix it, so he fixed it. And when I went to pick up the car, I didn't have the full amount of money. And he said, just pay me when you get a chance. And I reacted in a little bit of surprise. And he said, I sold this truck to your dad 12 years ago. I know your dad. I know where you live. I know your grandparents. Bring the money when you can. And had I not, my parents and my grandparents would have heard about it. And they would have made sure that the mechanic was taken care of. So last week, we started the section in Acts 19 that most Bibles label the riot in Ephesus. Uh, Paul, in his Missionary travels had been thrown out of city, cities in Syria, in Israel, in Asia Minor, and Greece. Almost all the known areas of the world. He didn't make it up to the Crimea to be thrown out of there. Passing through Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, he had been asked to stay and preach the gospel to the people of that city. True to his promise to return to Ephesus if the Lord allowed, Paul was here in Acts 19 finishing up a three-year stay in Ephesus. So popular and successful was his ministry that the sheer number of Ephesian converts to Christianity from the, from the pagan goddess Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, so successful was he that it was threatening the economy of the uh, city cutting into the livelihood of the people who made their living off the cultic practices of the temple. Last week we read this in Acts 19, 23-28, and I will just read it very quickly and move on. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now today we are looking at the next six verses, uh, verses 29 through 34. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And that's what we'll cover today. And we'll now take it verse by verse. Verse 29 starts out, So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, we don't know how big the group of silversmiths Demetrius had gotten together, uh, or how many of the other trade guilds had joined him. But those men's chants, the enraged chants of greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, drew many more residents out into the streets. And we know that, uh, and we'll see exactly why we know that. The city of Ephesus had a great theater capable of holding 24,000 people, and we know that because it still stands. It is one of the best standing ruins in Turkey. And they able to go into the uh, theater and basically count how many people would go in there. A magnificent boulevard, the Arcadian Way, ran through the center of Ephesus from the um, silted up harbor. I mentioned last week that the harbor had silted up so they no longer really had a port and so they depended on the, on the tourists who came to see the um, Temple of Artemis because the port, like I say, was silted and no longer usable. But the Arcadian Wave ran from the port all the way through Ephesus up to the theater which was cut into the hillside uh, on the east side of town. It was, uh, the Arcadian Way was lined with lavish buildings and porticos and it was this street that Demetrius and his mob took to the meeting place of the theater. Along the way they found two of Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. And despite the Greek name, Aristarchus was a Hebrew Christian. He was not one of the converts in Macedonia. In Colossians 4, 10 through 11, Paul relates this. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. 
and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Aristarchus was one of those fellow workers, men of the circumcision. Aristarchus, by the way, would remain with Paul uh, to the end of the apostle's life in Rome. A trusted companion indeed. And while it reads that Gaius and Aristarchus were uh, Macedonians, Gaius was from Derb. We know that in Asia Minor. And scholars believe that the word Macedonian here was singular and applying to Aristarchus only. And why did they seize the Apostle Paul's traveling companions and not Paul himself? Well, either the mob could not find him, and I, I'm going to refer to them as a mob a lot, just because I want to make sure you know it was a mob. Um, they either could not find uh, Paul, or he'd been hidden by his disciples, because we see that in verse 30, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Paul was never lacking for courage. Uh, he, where, whatever punishment was going to be given to him by the preaching of the gospel, he was willing to accept. So we see Paul willing to go to the theater where his traveling companions had been taken probably to see if he could have them released. But the disciples, the new Christians in Ephesus, would not allow him to do it until the passion of the mob died down. The word here used to say that he, uh, the disciples would not let him is put in the present tense. They were not permitting him to go. And that is done to show that Paul didn't ask once and get turned down. They were not permitting him to go. No matter how many times Paul said he wanted to go, they would not let him go. Uh, the authenticity of Luke's reporting, because people question, you know, is, does Luke make things up in this, uh, in his account in Acts? Is he an entirely honest reporter? And a lot of modern scholars will say, no, this is made up. The authenticity is proved because if Paul had made up this story, if Luke had made up this story, Paul would have been in the center of it. Instead, he's on the periphery. He is not involved in these events. But it was not just the Ephesian Christians who feared for Paul's safety. Verse 31 says, Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now the Asiarchs were uh, leading men, leading businessmen uh, uh, of the best families of the province of Asia Minor, which of course we know is Turkey today. One man every year was elected to represent the entire uh, province and then others were elected underneath him to represent the leading cities. So these were the leading men of Asia Minor, and it was this group 
who also prevailed upon Paul to stay away from the city. The fact that these men were friendly to Paul and concerned about his welfare showed that this point in time, the point in history, um, the Roman government was not opposed to Christianity. A, uh, a uh, commenter wrote a sect where, whose leaders had Asiarchs for friends could not be dangers to the state. Now, for the uh, scene inside the theater, uh, it's a scene reminiscent of protesters and turmoil a few years ago that we saw uh, on the killing of George Floyd. My son got back from a deployment to Iraq and uh, later in Kuwait, so he was gone for nine months, and when he got back, he was disturbed. Uh, and uh, I thought he was bothered by his uh, experience in wartime Iraq, and it was not that. He said, I could not believe what was going on in the cities of the United States. He said, I went to, I went to war <clears throat> to come back to this. And he was, he was upset at the protests and turmoils that he found. Verse 32 says, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now this is just as today, people were swept up in a mob and didn't even know what it was for. How many times have we seen that in demonstrations that people gather together and the people on the street really don't even know what's going on but they're swept up in the emotion of the time. This is what's happening here. They joined this group simply to shout, to, to riot, to cause disturbances. And they did it just simply because the rest of the people were doing it. But this group was united in one aspect. Their resentment against anyone who would not pay respect or honor to their false god, Artemis. Now, there were only two groups in the uh, entire Roman Empire that would not pay service to the false gods. And as I went through them a while back, there were over 2,000 different false gods that could be honored. The Jews famously would not bow down to false gods. From the time of at least Daniel going forward, Daniel was thrown to the lions because he would not bow down to the emperor who was a false god. From that time forward, it was known throughout the Roman Empire that Jews would not bow down. And then along come the Christians. Christians were thought to be antisocial, to, for a small term, because they would not honor the pagan gods of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empires were quite willing to call Jesus Christ a God and worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would do that because they were already worshiping 2,000 other gods. But Christians and Jews would not bow their knee to the false gods. So verse 33 says, Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Now, this is a little bit convoluted, but John MacArthur went through the grammar that's being used here. 
And he says that the sentence structure in Greek leads to a translation that more or less some Jews in the crowd instructed Alexander to speak for them. Alexander climbed on the stage and motioning with his hand for silence, he wanted to make a defense for the Jewish community in this matter because the Jews were trying to, to remove themselves from the situation that the Christians found themselves in. Remember, Christians and Jews worshipped together in synagogues until about 105 AD when the Jews also threw the Christians out of the synagogue because the Christians were causing a problem and the Jews were being lumped in with them. The same thing is happening here 50 years earlier in that the Jews and Christians in Ephesus are seen as the same group of people. The Christians uh, in the uh, uh, form of Aristarchus and uh, Gaius have been seized for converting the city to Christianity and the Jews are saying, no, it's not us. So they, here they are putting Alexander up to speak for them in front of this unruly gathering to distance the Jews from what's going on. But verse 34 reads, But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So for two hours, every time that uh, Alexander tries to speak, they shout him down, okay, with their cries. Uh, this is the 57 AD equivalent of sticking your fingers in your ears and saying, I can't hear you, la 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 la. Um, the Western text of this passage adds the detail that the mob pulled him down, okay? So he had mounted a platform, he goes to speak, the, God, uh, the mob pulled him off the platform and continued shouting not to allow him to speak. This shouting down of unwanted opinions or popular speakers also unfortunately has parallels to today. You can see it almost every day on some university campuses. Uh, very famously at uh, Stanford just recently, people were not allowed to speak by, uh, by those opposed to what they were supposed to have been going to say. Uh, this denial of free speech is commonly known as the heckler's veto. The heckler, the mob, coming out and not letting you speak and they're vetoing anything you might have said by their rude behavior. So, when I mention that God hates cities, that his ideal for the human race was to spread out and over the earth in cooperative and supportive people groups, it's not just because of the mob action we've just seen taking place in Ephesus. It has to do with all the differences you find contrasted between what we see reflected in the election map of the United States. You've seen that map, whole United States, completely red, little blue on the, on the sides, little blue cities in the middle. Looking at that map, you would think America is overwhelmingly traditional. 
that we hold to traditional values. Traditional values are also described as conservative values. After all, that map is completely red. But that map is misleading. The United States, uh, the United Nations population studies show that 55% of the world's population resides in cities. So those are those little dots. And 45%, therefore, spread out across the rural landscape. Uh, in the United States, it's probably even a higher percentage. I've seen it as high as 85% live in cities in the United States. That's why you have these little blue dots on the coasts and in the heartland, and the rest is all red because the center of the population of the population are centered in the cities. This divide of the blue progressive cities versus the red traditional rural countryside has more consequences for society than rule of law versus mob rule, which we've just seen, or free speech versus the heckler's veto, which we've just seen. In this country, there is now an ongoing argument over what you can't say, what is forbidden to voice, and what you must say nowadays, such as calling people by whatever name they wish to be called. That is compelled speech versus free speech. The red state, blue state divide also encompasses community beliefs between religious and secular beliefs. It's well known that the, the more rural countryside is religious, the more citified is more secular, and that is found going back to the Tower of Babel, uh, the city of Babel. It is the war between traditional and unconventional lifestyles, a battle between individual rights and collective rights, increasingly governing what you can say or do that may go against the, the ends of a progressive society, which is God's model for mankind throughout scripture. And it's interesting to, to be reading that. If it's not clear enough for you in scripture, look around you. One shading of the red-blue map worships Jesus Christ, however imperfectly they do. And one shading rejects God and is actively working to do so as perfectly as it can. There's a choice in front of us all on how we are to live. God explained it. God shows us very clearly what he wants for us. He wants us to live a life of obedience. He wants us to live a life of service to others. He wants us to live a life of responsibility to our community. He wants us to live a life of honoring God, Jesus Christ. One model provides that possibility and one works to prevent it. Let's close in prayer.